big thank you to everyone who's joined us here in person. We are really excited to have you with us. We have a combined in-person audience and a live stream audience. The purpose is to bring together a community of practitioners, people who are in the weeds on sustainability, not just talking about it, but actually doing it and working on it and facing the sort of the struggles and the tribulations of the field. Super excited to have Henry with us, Kendall with us from our side as well. Uh, Henry's obviously a thought leader uh, in the space, uh, combined wealth of experience. Um, and, you know, I, I think what we're really excited to have Henry with us for is, is, is bringing together maybe two or three aspects. One is uh, of the, the food entrepreneur, right, with Leon restaurants and the experience getting in the field, being a sustainability innovator, uh, but then also DEFRA and the national food strategy and really the regulatory direction and, and the trends and trajectories that we see. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm excited to be part of this discussion as well as the CEO of Altruistic. We focus on the sustainability data management side, and a lot of this is going to require, a lot of the transition is going to require world-class data capabilities. Um, Kendall's helpfully uh, sort of brought together a, a list of the, the, the best questions that we received uh, submitted in advance. So what we thought we might do is actually run through those questions, which Kendall will kind of uh, shoot our way. And again, just really take up the next 20, 25, uh, 30 minutes with those. Uh, assume those will be of relevance to both the in-person audience, but the virtual audience as well. Um, and, uh, and, and, then, and then we can take it from there. Obviously, anyone joining us virtually, please feel free to submit more questions in the chat uh, and we can, we can cover them off as well if there's time. And then if there are no questions coming through in the chat, uh, obviously also happy to take, take any questions from the live audience as well. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll shut off and we'll have only the live audience for the discussion. Um, awesome, I will, I will take over then to manage questions. So we have the questions that were pre-submitted by some of our digital attendees. So the first one was asked by Leonie, and I think this is geared towards you, Henry, but how do you think a focus on emissions will play out versus a focus on nutrition? Okay, so if you think about that from a, a kind of national and governmental level, it obviously refers to the fact the food system is causing two or actually three problems. So there's the environmental problem, which you can break into biodiversity emissions. The food system is by far the biggest um, uh, cause of the reduction in biodiversity, deforestation, aquatic life, and second to energy in terms of uh, uh, carbon emissions. And uh, on health, it is now the biggest cause of non-communicable disease by some way in the UK. You know, Chris Whitty was making uh, online lectures in his free time during lockdown, warning anyone who would listen about the problems that diet was going to cause uh, both to the NHS and to the UK economy. And so these are two huge problems for our society, but they're being dealt with very differently by government. So if you look at climate change, we, we are the only country in the world to have a plan with it literally going to come in the world that has divided up the net zero target to each department and government have detailed targets. Now, the bottom up plans are not there yet, but each government department has its target and we're rolling that out in different carbon budgets. And uh, although that is obviously because of the kind of international framing, that is uh, a production target so in, the, in the food world, that means we can actually import a lot of uh, carbon emissions without being charged for them, but it's it's a start. 
And I think there you will see, you know, increasing government focus, increasing pressure on food companies. Defra is to raise coffee, interestingly, as completely untrustian in her approach. She is very focused on carbon targets and biodiversity targets. She's quite legalistic on it. She takes statutory duties uh, very seriously. And I think you will see continuing pressure from government to get, get to net zero within the time frame. On the health side, uh, we have no statutory targets. So on the health side, we have a kind of slightly vague target to reduce childhood obesity. But interestingly, in the last six weeks, really, both the shadow Labour cabinet, you saw it on Monday, and interestingly, the Treasury and the Tory government have, have been shocked looking at the numbers coming out of Treasury in terms of the health um, impact uh, on the economy. So, you know, Andy Haldane, the former uh, chief economist of the Bank of England, gave a speech about four or five weeks ago saying that the biggest thing holding back the economy is ill health, non-communicable ill health, saying that like, what that looks like if you play it forward is um, uh, the NHS sucking in all the money from the rest of government departments, GDP stagnating, tax rates going down, and us becoming both impoverished and sick. So if you are a company, what does that mean for you? So on the, I think what you will see is companies such as the big, uh, you know, Nestle, Unilever, most big companies will, re will push really hard on carbon because they know they can't do anything about health. So basically what happens is if they try and make their food healthier, someone else sells unhealthy food, they lose share. And the only thing that is going to stop the health uh, problems in that track is either <clears throat> quite strong government intervention, which may come from actually from either party, or we all drug our, uh, we, you know, we have a third of the uh, population uh, on appetite suppressing drugs, first of which is semaglutide, but semaglutide is the first of it, it's like the Prozac of the appetite suppressing drugs. So I think in health, you will see the big companies do nothing, really. Try to, they'll continue to release Kit Kat cereals. Uh, uh, but on on carbon, there will actually be kind of, I think, a, a proper arms race. And then the only other thing I'd say is uh, biodiversity. So over the next five years, biodiversity will seem to, will be seen to be as important as carbon. And I think that you might find yourselves being asked, not only are you hitting net zero, but are you restoring biodiversity? And I think we will find it that there is also statutory target in this country to restore 30% of uh, land to nature by 2030 to return it to more natural state and to stop the destruction of biodiversity by 2030 as well. And that is just something to have an eye on. I asked one of the boards I was on the other day, they had an absolutely brilliant net zero strategy. And I said, well, what about biodiversity? And they were like, uh, you know, so that is coming for you. So I would say separate things. Most people are waiting for government to act on health. We're going to accelerate down net zero and be, be, be aware that this biodiversity thing is coming down the road. Interesting. So you've, you've really divided those two things out very clearly. Seth, kind of following on from that, I'm wondering if you can talk us through 
what systems and processes you think companies will need to adopt where they overlap, where they would be drastically different to deal with both emissions and nutrition? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I really like actually Henry's positioning, which is it's almost easier and more defined to work on carbon right now than to work on health. I think that if we if we maybe look at the problem another way, let's start with the consumer perspective, which is I think there are two uh, consumer interests right now, and there's good data behind both these. One is to understand more about the product you're buying. And so whether you call it traceability, whether you look at it from a health perspective, quality, sustainability, more and more consumers want to be more and more involved in the decision-making of what product they're buying. They don't just want to go in and buy something because it's been marketed. They want to know what sits behind it. And I think the second one is the trend towards, let's say, guilt-free shopping, where if you think of each FMCG now competing over effectively that split-second decision, do I take a Kit Kat off the shelf or not, or do I take something else? Uh, that sort of that instinct where, where actually the, the guilt element of maybe it's too sugary, maybe it's not sustainable, can kind of hold you back. More and more companies, I think, are becoming conscious of wanting to play into that narrative and that system. And so I think that if you look at these two outcomes, one is trying to understand more of what goes into the products that you're buying and more of what it represents. And the second is the guilt-free element. I think one is a little easier to identify overlaps than the other. So if you look at what's in the product, I think that we can see good parallels from the sustainability narrative uh, also playing out in health. Because if you think of how an emissions calculation works, right, we're basically taking some element of volumetric data. We're looking at how much cocoa was used, how many kilometers of distance, how much sugar, et cetera. And you're multiplying it by an assumption, in this case, an emissions factor. You could, in theory, use the same processes and even the same technology to work out nutrition assumptions because you're basically running a calculation. You're taking some element of business data, some element of assumption and combining the two. And so I think that it's not just that there are overlaps, but those should be approached increasingly together. I think it is important for companies to find the synergies and the ways to save effort and time and resource in combining those, but also in positioning those similarly to consumers. I think on the second one, which is the guilt-free element, that's a bit harder. And I think one of the reasons is with emissions and sustainability, we have a much better idea of what good looks like or what the end goal is almost. Like we talk about net zero, we talk about 1.5 degrees. Uh, whereas I think that that the equivalent on the nutrition side or on the well-being side or on the health side is a, is a little harder from the conversations we've had with business for business to recognize, like if I'm a, a processed meat company, what does that look like for me, for example? Or if I'm in the sugary snacks business, what does that look like for me? Is it just that I do need to migrate wholesale from this business because it's it's a binary decision? Or is there a more nuanced journey where I can get to a place where I'm good or great without entirely leaving my business as opposed to just transforming the way I do business? Um, I mean, I'd love to hear actually your take on that, uh, whether that resonates with what you're saying. Yeah, so I think, interestingly, there is another thing that's coming down the line. So one of the recommendations in the food strategy was that we didn't have enough national data on the food system and that we needed to create uh, a, a data framework so that literally you could understand for every for a bit of land, what it was capable of doing, what food was being sold where, and so on and so forth. And that has become, because uh, the civil service loves an acronym, uh, the uh, FDTP, I think the Food Data Transparency Partnership, and there is currently a real fight going on about that. So everyone's kind of quite happy with um, putting their uh, net zero, their carbon data into this uh, 
what will be a disguise but published forum. But there is uh, there is a big pulling away on nutritional data. So we recommended that you should have to say how much meat you sold, uh, sugar, fat, HFSS, etc. And you've got company Nestle already publishes its HFSS. I mean, it, it releases Kit Kat cereal and calls it nutritious. But at the same time, at least it publishes its uh, HFSS. A lot of other companies at the moment are saying, no, we don't want to go there. Uh, we don't want to publish the kind of nutritional data. And I think, interestingly, that that is going to be something that will play out over now until the next lecture. I think it's almost certain that the health data gets so bad that at some point that will be a requirement on companies to do that. Um, so that's, again, something to think of down the line. The other thing I would say in terms of your point about, you know, uh, what, you know, what you can do if you are, if you are a sugary snacks company, uh, it, you are in an incredibly difficult position. And funny enough, a, a CEO from a sugary, you know, someone who's 60% uh, of their products are HFSS came up to me and said, what, what can I do? And I don't think there's much they can do, actually. If you, I mean, some of the family-owned businesses are saying, right, well, when do I move? Like, I've got to get out of this stuff because I'm not going to make all my money on this stuff in 10 years' time. But if you're the CEO of a public business, you know, you, you saw what happened to the CEO of Danon recently for trying to move too quickly on sustainability. He got fired. So I think for the, on the health side, companies where the large part, they have big factories with a lot of invested capital making 28, the 28 different kinds of Kit Kat you can get. Now 29, thanks to the addition of the cereal. I think they're really stuck. I think they're really stuck. I mean, we call it the junk food cycle and the strategy because our appetite uh, makes us love that stuff because we evolved when calories were scarce. And if uh, scientifically it is the case that if food is high in sugar and fat, it gives you a bigger dopamine response. And if it is low in soluble fiber, you eat more of it before you get full. And companies have sold more and more, and we've eaten more and more, and we've got sick. And 85% of the portfolios of the seven biggest consumer goods companies are, are, are foods, the skews of foods that are deemed by the WHO to be uh, too unhealthy to market to children. And those companies are as stuck, they're not evil, they're stuck. They didn't realize in the 70s when they started making Finger the Fudge and just enough to give a kid a treat that actually they would become a new smoking. I think they're really. It's very difficult being in that position. Hmm. Um, you touched on this briefly just in your last answer, but the next question we had submitted was from James. And this was, and Seth, I'm actually going to ask you your thoughts on this. Um, what changes do you think will be needed in how food companies approach evolving standards and frameworks? Yeah, I mean, actually, and I, I think Henry kind of referred to this a little as well in terms of what disclosures are taking place. And on, on the emissions side, I think now I was actually just at, a, at, a, at, a, at another session earlier this morning looking at the food index released by Tortoise Media and their ranking of, of kind of good good to, to bad uh, from the, the disclosure perspective on, on food businesses. And I think we're now starting to get a, a pattern of, of improving behavior from certainly the largest food companies and at least sharing more data out there. And certainly on scope one and two, this is really good. On scope three, this is not great, but getting better. I think the next transition is what sits beneath the hood of those, those scopes, basically. And so I think that there's two uh, big shifts that are needed. Uh, one is, and, and I'd love to see their parallels uh, for this on the, on the nutrition side as well. I think one shift is um, actually 
I personally find find scope one, two, and three not super helpful or super relevant uh, for for this. I know this is a, a funny thing to say given the the space that I'm, I'm working in. But scope one, two, and three are very specifically oriented around how you've set up your business. If you're actually outsourcing manufacturing or insourcing, if you're working with a third party and you have a lot of control over the third party or not, like this starts to affect which scopes these fall into. So in a world where actually some people are doing scope one and two and not scope three, like it gets very confusing actually. And I think it makes it very hard to draw comparisons. So I think there's one element which is actually moving towards product-based uh, uh, numbers and actually product-based emissions data sharing, which is much easier to look at. If I give a different example, let's take a, a t-shirt for instance. Uh, you could have two companies making exactly the same sort of t-shirt and one of them is fully outsourcing all the processes and the other one is fully insourcing it. And maybe the one that's fully insourcing it is better, actually. They're getting better material, they're making it the better way, but actually they might look worse because a lot of the intensity metrics that are going around out there are looking at scope one and two and actually just depreciating that over the revenue of the product. So there's a lot of this sort of funny numbers that I think we'll lose when we move to product-based comparisons. I think the other aspect which we don't have enough conversation on right now is what are the methodologies deployed? Um, and right now there's good understanding of like spend-based emissions measurement versus activity-based. And I, I know most of the companies certainly in this room are already well underway in, in, in their thinking around that and, and lots of live audience on the on the virtual audience as well. Uh, but I think that there's a few levels to unpack below that as well, which is, for example, if you're if you're looking at, for example, food based supply chains, we're going to start thinking about land use change. We're going to start thinking about land management and land management shifts as well. And that's not only in, incompatible with spend based approaches, but you also need to start getting deep into the weeds of where did emissions factors come from? Which year were they? How are they split out across different components or subcomponents? So I think there's a lot of this unpacking of methodologies and approaches that we're also going to need to start um, uh, start sharing. And I don't think that um, I think there's one question about whether businesses can do that. I think there's another about whether they will do that. And in the same way that a lot of companies are resistant to sharing nutritional data, I suspect one of the reasons is that it's IP. The more data you start sharing around what, what goes into your products, the more you're getting the recipe, the secret sauce, literally. Um, and the same gets true for how deep and granular you go into emissions data as well. So I think there's a good question around uh, ability and willingness, actually, as well. And funny enough, I was talking to Tortoise earlier on today about the need to separate the index, because at the moment, I just got bombarded with not only campaigners, but like a, 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 someone who runs a one billion pound food fund saying, I cannot believe that Nestle and Unilever are in the top 10 of healthy and sustainable businesses. So I think that that might, you might see environment and health separate out. There's one thing I'd add to that is if you think about a government trying to manage down to net zero in the food system, clearly, uh, I, I cannot see any world in which they don't bring net, um, uh, the, the emissions from food, from farms and agriculture, and account those with the other with the other companies. You know, the supermarkets clearly a huge part of their emissions, or a car, a huge part of your emissions are with your suppliers, and you have the. It is much easier for the government to set you targets. Um, than it is for them to deal with all the smaller suppliers. So I think at some point we will be going to responsibility for one, two, and three. I just can't see how you how you manage it otherwise in the food 
food world. Yeah, for sure. I guess to, to follow on from that bit, so Seth, you touched on um, the willingness of organizations and also the, the feasibility, I suppose. So Henry, I would kind of like your thoughts on how forward-leaning we can expect, um, especially in the like DEFRA and FSA to be when it comes to adopting a digital agenda? <laughs> it's not something that government does well. So if you look at just the incredible, so, you know, during the food strategy, one of the people on my on my advisory team uh, was Paul Clark, who was the CTO of Ocado. He created the, the robot swarm. He created the digital twin. So they were constantly running their business with digital twins running alongside. So you could see what might happen. And, and, and he was just like, he has been talking to government now for five years and is just like, amazed by how bad government's grasp is of i don't even understand like kind of why you might want live data um i really don't get it. so i think that you will find I, I think companies will always be miles ahead there are people now so through the obviously covid helped that brought people a bit of more of an understanding into number 10 Patrick Valance, where he's leaving now, but he was very big on this agenda. But I think it is very unlikely that the government will be doing anything groundbreaking on data, but they will increasingly be asking yeah. for more data. It, they will just be, they will ask for it in frustrating ways. Uh, they will ask for the wrong thing. They will, you know, there will be, it, it will be a painful, it will be a painful process. You know, Henry, I find that one of the really interesting sidesteps in this whole space is that we all think of, for example, sustainability data and emissions data as similar to accounts. And I know that this now, like, again, this maybe is heresy, right? But like with accounts, you're sort of basically looking at it backwards. You're saying, hey, what was the last year like? And can I have a view on that? You're not actually ever planning to change the last year, right? If you could sell more, you'd be selling more regardless of what your accounts are, are telling you. And actually, if you look at, for example, how businesses treat financial data, yes, they have their accounts, but they're not using their accounts for monthly planning, right? They're, they're not like taking a balance sheet and saying, okay, good, what do I do next month to grow my revenue from my sales team or cut, cut costs? They're actually using, using you know, either different softwares, different tools, different approaches, different teams to really start thinking about on a dynamic basis, what do I do month on month to improve the fundamental financial quality of my business? And like they basically need to do the same thing, not just on environmental sustainability, but also nutrition. There's no point yeah. looking at a, a, a sort of a, a, a ledger from last year. Yeah. You should be looking at what you're going to be doing next month, doing something differently, and then comparing and seeing whether it worked out or not. And I don't know whether that, I, I know that most of the forward-leaning businesses that we speak with are thinking about this, right? And that's why they're looking at live data. Yeah. It doesn't have to be live, live, but it should be at least monthly, right, or quarterly. Is there any recognition you think of that? Like in, <laughs> I remember I sat in a meeting with Paul. Well, he he was talking about the need for transport and freight. He was trying to he was trying to suggest to government that actually we needed to create an opt-in model so that anyone who was in transport there could be a live model of who was going to where with what. And the example he gave was he is constantly has these refrigerated vans going around the country. I had at the time. And he was apps, and he'd worked with a local hospital trying to create digital twin hospital. He was absolutely sure that there was a huge economy stable, for example, for cardio bands to be taking blood, to be carrying blood from hospital to hospital because they were traveling around empty. 
you saw the civil servants. It's like they thought that this was clearly, you know, this was just miles of miles away for that. This was space age stuff. So I think that I, I just, you know, there is a there's a very good data department. There was a department that was set up in number ten to do live by, by Dominic Cummings to do live data dashboards. Uh, and it's kind of hanging on by the skin of its teeth, but it is n it is just not a, it's not something that I would ever expect government <laughs> to be doing anything of anytime soon. This ties us quite nicely <clears throat> into the, the next question that we had pre-submitted. I'm aware we haven't actually got into any of the questions we've had from the live audience. I don't think we'll have time, I'm sorry. Um, we have had a few, but just prioritizing the ones that um, were submitted beforehand. The next question from Alex was, what do you expect the main sustainability priorities for the UK government to be going forward? If it's not digitization, what is it? So first of all, it is, they've got their net zero plan. They are still department by department. So every department has its uh, allocated budget. They still do not have the bottom up activities to meet those budgets. So that is, thing one that they're going to be doing and that you know that's happened i think the second thing is how do they socialize the cost of the electricity transition so there is a huge you know the problem with electricity and renewables now is the grid and uh if you look at you know, not selling electric cars there'll be a lot of petrol cars down the road but not selling electric cars by 2030 there is a huge amount of laying of wires to be done and it is dawning on them that you cannot expect, you know, one one service station to pay 11 million quid to get a wire onto it. So there's a whole issue about which Labour have, you know, published on, but the Tories are aware of. I think that's number two. And then on biodiversity, we have these targets and there are no plans. So uh, that target is now being taken more seriously. So I think trying to work out how, you know, at the moment, since 1970, we have lost half the farmland birds in this country. And that, and we are still, every year, we are destroying biodiversity. The target is to stop destroying it, and we have no idea yet how to do it. And that is, uh, assessor, that is incredibly complicated because it involves paying and regulating land use and the change of land use, and that is incredibly political. So I would say, yeah. Uh, uh, Bottom-up net zero plans. How well, how do we socialise the cost of the energy transition, and how do we how do we do biodiversity restoration? And I suppose just to, to tie us off, and then we will unfortunately be shutting off the cameras, um, not for all of you that are with us today. But um, what, Seth, to to close us? What do you think is the readiness of food companies specifically to to meet the priorities that Henry's just laid out there? So I think the elephant in the room is biodiversity, right? Like, I, and and some of us are already starting to think about not just the abstract biodiversity problem, but how do we actually start working on this in a meaningful way? And circularity is kind of similar, right? It's it's right now it's a bit of the 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 bugbear that a lot of businesses are trying to do a pilot project here or there, but not really thinking yet about how do we do it at scale. I think the difference with emissions is we're already starting to think about how do we do this at scale. Like if you look at how we talk about data systems and, and roadmaps and targets, we're thinking company-wide and product uh, all along the product. 
Whereas I think that for biodiversity, I actually think that the interesting thing here is it's a bit of like the tail wagging the dog, where in a sense, regulation on biodiversity is actually suddenly caught up quite quickly and is now moving moving faster than most businesses are ready for to prescribe some sort of action. Uh, but regulation is almost assuming that businesses know what that action could look like. It's just if they had the forcing mechanism, they would now do it. Whereas actually, I think most businesses, you know, with the best of intentions, don't don't know where to begin. Like, if you look at how you could actually just get really into the weeds of it, uh, you can either look at inputs or you can look at outputs. Right? So you can either say, look, like what 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 I did there to improve the biodiversity of a specific part of my business or estate, like did it deliver outcomes? Or you can look at like, can I do things that are highly correlated with delivering the right outcomes? Now, let's take a simple thing like you have a farm and you have a number of species of insects and, uh, you know, living on the farm. Try going out and measuring that, right? Like, good luck. It's going to be a, an ordeal. And I know because I, I have a farm and I tried. Um, <laughs> the other thing you're going to do is you're going to look at inputs and you're going to say, okay, look, I have pesticides, I have fertilizers, I have certain practices and I have certain correlations of, 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 of how this would work which is very imprecise. And so the only thing that you can look at is almost some sort of a scoring mechanism, red, yellow, green, right? Like, is this a good activity, a bad activity? It's not a great way to start channeling money, no, for example, no, right? No, it could put all sorts of unintended consequences or make things worse. We have no idea what the correlations are in some of these things, yeah. right? But also if you look at the nice thing about carbon, and I think we can get this on water and we can get this on waste and a few other areas, is that because we're now digitizing, we will have better data. The data right now is horrible for most companies, right? But the data will get better because we're digitizing and we're shining a light on it. When the data gets better, we can use the better data to pinpoint where we should invest and where we should spend money in our businesses and in our supply chains. You just can't create that loop yet for biodiversity because no one actually really knows how. Yeah. Uh, there are a few startups exploring this space. I don't see any of them getting massive traction on approaches or customer bases yet. I hope they do. Um, but I don't see yet the adoption within businesses, right, of how they're going to use whatever comes out of that to, to invest money at scale, not just a small project. Um, but I mean, so, oh, it's interesting. So I was, uh, yesterday I was chatting, I was talking with uh, Julian Critchlow, who was a guy I used to work with at Bain, the consultancy, and then he'd done energy all his life, and he went to work in Bayes, and he was the director general responsible for net zero. And I was talking about biodiversity. He was saying, like, everyone, while he was doing the net zero plan, was trying to get him to do biodiversity alongside it, all like DEFRA constantly. He was like, we don't even have a net zero plan. We don't know how to measure biodiversity. Let's at least get this in place, because you're going to overcomplicate it. So I think you're exactly, I think what will happen with biodiversity, I think businesses will start to think about it. So if you, you know, and they'll just start to think about specific things they can do to improve it. DEFRA will try and work out input ways of yes. paying farms to do it. And we'll kind of creep towards 2030. And at some point, something will happen that suddenly kind of chucks it straight. It's beginning to bubble. And, yeah. and then the government will scramble. And, you know, but at the moment, it's just something that, everyone is aware isn't being done yeah. and no one quite knows how to, certainly no one knows how to measure it. And again, sorry, I realize we we're just about to shut up for that, but I, I think, I think circularity and waste is again, very similar, right? Where we can kind of talk a lot about everything, but the actual mechanisms to start doing this at scale across full systems, like you're getting into re-engineering, you know, and, and biodiversity is harder than waste, right? With waste and circularity, you're getting into re-engineering the whole pattern of social behavior 
and municipalities. And, and it's just so hard to actually create a loop within a business where it can have data that can reinforce investment decisions and create a, a, a process that become, keeps becoming better. Um, but, but super excited to have, have taken a, a bunch of questions from the audience. We're going to shut off the, the, the live stream now. Did the audience arrive in the end? Uh, we think so. We'll only actually know once it's published, which is the scary thing. So, had some live questions coming. Oh, so, so, probably have, yeah. Yeah. so if you have a, a free few minutes and you want a bit of schadenfreude, then you might want to check out our, our LinkedIn or my LinkedIn and see there are a lot of like negative comments there <laughs> from, from botched, botched streaming. Apologies for the, the technical Thank you, everyone, everyone who joined the, the, the live stream. We're going to leave the studio now, but then continue the, the rest of the discussion. Uh, in, in person.